Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try to sell that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? Savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations, that really turned out well. I'm a really good job. I'm really, really, I'm surprised. You know, I wish I thought of that. I never thought anyone would. How did you do that? I'm so glad you're here. I wish I had the courage to follow my dreams. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person, this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a serial entrepreneur myself, and I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses over the past 30 years. I have seen lots of mistakes, and I've made plenty of them myself. The show has two goals, to share helpful information and to inspire, to make your journey as an entrepreneur faster and easier, and maybe just a little bit more fun. Now, to help with that, I host weekly guests to share their stories and advice. And this week's guest is Dr. Shashi Gupta. Dr. Shashi Khan Gupta, or Shashi as he said it's okay to call him, is the co-founder and chief executive officer of a company called Apex CoVantage. He has guided Apex's numerous trailblazing technologies over the years in such diverse markets as publishing, media, and entertainment electric, gas, and water utilities, and has included the development of several cutting-edge software products. He has a very interesting philosophy, and that forms the basis for the culture of the family of companies that fall under Apex CoVantage, which is what we're going to talk more about today. He says his philosophy balances the cognitive power of the human mind with the processing power of computers. Now, prior to finding Apex CoVantage, Shashi was a consultant to the U.S. government, where he developed computer models to address nuclear waste disposal issues. He holds an MBA and a Ph.D. from Michigan State University. He's channeled his strong sense of social justice by establishing the Gupta Family Foundation, a private foundation that supports organizations helping disadvantaged people become more self-reliant. What a wonderful goal. So with that introduction, Shashi, thanks so much for being on the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Doris. What I really want to talk with you about is your philosophy of creating the business culture that you've created at Apex CoVantage and its family of companies. First, though, talk a little bit about what your company actually does and the backstory on why and how you founded it. Sure. We started in 18, uh, 1989 with the objective of creating all kinds of information that were on paper into digital form. So anybody who's read or looked up JSTOR, that's our work. Anybody who's read online on case law, we've done a lot of case law conversions into digital form. In fact, we have done a large number of newspapers. We've converted them to digital form so that they are more accessible. And we have converted rare books and papers of such people as Thomas Jefferson 
into digital form so that this valuable information is no longer stored in vaults. It's become available to everyone around the world. Fascinating. Yes. And so now we are concentrated largely on the publishing sector. And we take a book from the stage that it's a manuscript and make them ready to publish in print and in electronic form. So who are your typical clients, would you say? And how do you typically find these clients? Our typical clients include data aggregators like JSTOR that I mentioned, as well as publishers of academic books. And how we find them is through several channels. One is we go to trade shows and exhibit our services and our technology at those shows. We pre-book appointments with prospective clients and give them demos of what we have to offer. Another way is to get information on companies in our target market from sales databases. And then we run email campaigns and follow up phone calls. Our goal is to engage the customer or the prospect in a you know, short 15-minute conversation. Because once we do that, as Doris was mentioning, our hallmark is that we balance the cognitive power of the mind with the processing power of the computer in every technology we build. And what that means is that at any point in time, there is an optimal balance between the mind and the computer, which leads to the highest efficiency and the highest level of quality. And if you shift that needle too far off that balanced point, you get inefficiencies and you get degradations in quality. Interesting. I definitely would like to hear more about this. I think it's, it's interesting to think about this as a needle or a gauge that you're thinking about. But I think maybe it might be useful to back up just for a second, because I know that culture is something you're really passionate about. But why is a business's culture so important? And maybe this plays into the gauge that you're talking about. Well, it's that and more. The culture is very important because it provides the guiding light for every decision, large or small, that confronts us daily. So because we have a strong culture, It's very easy to make decisions, and it's also the decisions made at different parts of the company are also going to be consistent because they're all aligned to the culture of the company. So, for example, we started the company with the concept that business should be a force for good. It shouldn't be a force for greed. So this kind of a principle becomes the North Star for the company. And beneath that, we identified specific values that we would sign up to. The first value we signed up to was integrity. That is empowering everybody in the company to tell the truth, not avoid the facts. And how important is that in today's world? The second value was human dignity. And the point there is, In all our interactions, we should conduct ourselves in a way that enhances the other person's dignity. 
unlike what we see today, where the stronger somebody gets, the more roughly they treat people who are not as strong. Our view is the stronger you get, the more gentle you should become. And this applies not only to customers, but also to employees and to vendors. In all our interactions, this is our guiding light. So the third value that we signed up to is a relentless pursuit of excellence. And just as an aside, we came up with this slogan before Lexus came up with it. The slogan of the relentless pursuit of perfection. So with these values, you know, the first challenge is to live by these values, not just state them. And that has to show in every action from the leadership down to the lowest level of the company. In our company, for instance, people refer to me just as Shashi, even though they are the, maybe a data entry operator, everybody refers to me as Shashi, which is beautiful because it just says at one level, we are all equal. At a human level, we are all equal. And that culture has now sunk in to every level of the company. And if you're familiar with India, which is a very hierarchical society, this is tremendous. This is absolutely unusual to find that an employee at any level calls the CEO by their first name. How did you decide on the three values that you mentioned? I mean, there's many things you could potentially say about a business and your culture. How did you decide on the ones you, you did? Well, there are two answers to this. One is that when I was growing up, I saw businesses do things that I was not very happy with. I mean, I didn't like what businesses do, uh, the kind of compromises they make, the kind of uh, oppression that they you know, uh, impose on other people and other competitors. So firstly, the idea was, can we build a company that is totally different? And can we build a company where we can be proud of what we do, we can be proud of how we do it, and we can be proud of what we do with the profits that we make. So this was one reason. But once we started building the company, it dawned on us that these are also life's most important principles. And so much of our foundation activity now promotes these three values as well. I'll bet, though, it wasn't always easy to live these values consistently. Talk about some of the challenges and mistakes that you've made along the way as the company grew. Absolutely. It is a challenging journey because everyone who comes into the company, maybe they don't fully comprehend what these values mean. Maybe they don't think that they are real. They are in our company. For example, we had a CEO of one of our businesses who was a Harvard Business School graduate. And he didn't understand that we really mean integrity when we say it. He came back from a customer visit. And when he relayed the conversation, I said, but that isn't really correct. And he was 
you know, surprised that I was bringing this up. And I said, okay, it's happened once. Don't do it again. Just tell the truth. The second time that he didn't tell the truth and I came to know of it, we fired him. A CEO on the spot. So the challenge is to actually live these values. Give an example or two of how it can be, sometimes be challenging because it sounds very admirable and yet I have a feeling that sometimes there are specific things that happen that make it very challenging sometimes for leaders or, or employees in the company to actually do that. Give an example or two of where those inflection points are that decide, yes, I'm going to live this culture or maybe we'll say it, but we'll do something a little different. Doris, in all fairness, when you have a company with 3,500 employees, not everybody can't live by these values, right? So first thing is you have to be tolerant, not become too extreme. The example I gave was at a senior level, but you can't have that kind of a black and white rule for everybody in the company. So the first challenge is how do you balance keeping the company as a whole aligned to these values while accepting that everybody at every time won't match up to these values, right? So balancing it, you know, what I call, you know, removing the sharp edges is very important. Although there is the challenge that removing the sharp edges becomes a slippery slope where you make little steps slowly away from what the original goal is. And that I'm sure that's very challenging to balance. Well, there is a Chinese uh, story that, you know, the true strength is in a blade of grass. <laughs> when the wind blows, the grass bends, but the moment the wind stops, it immediately becomes, you know, goes to face the sun because that's its nature. So you're right, it could be a slippery slope, except for the fact that our true north is very clearly defined. And even when it is compromised temporarily, it's only a temporary compromise, you see. So for us, I think rounding the sharp edges is not as risky as it could be in an environment where these values are propounded but not lived by. Does that answer the question? Yes. Are there any specific examples or stories that you can share that help illustrate what you mean? Let me see. When you said, you know, what are the challenges? One thing I wanted to mention is that in the early days, we recruited basically those people who we felt would be well suited for this value-based environment and we realized after some time that we had not given equal weight you asked about some of the challenges that we faced so in the early days we recruited people based on whether we thought they would be well aligned with our values because that is what we were trying to achieve is a company built on values and we realized over time that maybe we had 
uh, gone too far on this spectrum and some people who were really nice people who were aligned with the values but took that as an excuse for not performing and so you know five or six years into this experiment which is what we call apex it's a social experiment so five or six years later we realized that we've got to you know put capability and competence and skill you know at par with the values so our selection process was you know uh, a challenge in the beginning i would say and a misstep when it comes to living company values it's really important that you build the company around people who live those values so i I wanted to ask you about how you hire people. What's the process look like? In the recruiting process, we first make sure that the person is skilled and capable for the position we are hiring them. We do a good background check to make sure that they would be good members of a team. And then in the final, as a final step, we take a few minutes to talk to them about the culture of the company. Most of the time, people have a very positive reaction because Doris really today, I think it's like people are hungry for being part of a team that is living for more than making a buck for the owners. I would agree with you. I think especially the younger generations are definitely looking for looking for meaning in their job, right? It's not just a means to buy more things. Precisely. Precisely. You've said it so well. There are a lot of things in a business as you you work in the business on a day-to-day basis that affect your culture. In other words, you can make statements about a company's culture but living it requires lots and lots of little decisions and i have a feeling that sometimes when companies try to establish a culture or change a culture that they forget about some of those little decisions and little things about a company can you give an example or two of some things about your culture that maybe had unintended implications or things that you hadn't expected that were a surprise as you built your business? Sure. So there were a few instances where, you know, built on this culture, we also have, we operate on an honor code. And there is very little structure in the company. And so we've had cases where somebody who was really, really intelligent, really bright, a really good worker, but they just felt uncomfortable because of lack of structure. And they just didn't fit. So this is one example that comes to mind. The other example is much more at a much, at a much higher level. So when we started Apex, I anticipated that India would become a powerhouse in the software space. So we positioned ourselves to participate in that 
you know, tsunami. It really was a tsunami in the late 90s. We had networked with all the people in the business and so on. So unfortunately, the way the business evolved, evolved almost like a bonded labor, where youth from India were brought to America. They were given very tiny stipends. Their passports were taken by their employers, and they had to sign a bond that they would not leave the company. So on the, just on that reason, even though we had spent five or six years preparing to participate in this tsunami, we decided not to get into the software business from India, which really became a staff augmentation. So that's an example of something really significant decision that we made, which impacted the business. You know, I'm guessing too that developing a culture when you're very small and nimble is a different process than a company as you get much bigger. Talk about some of the changes or challenges that you face as the company grew in maintaining your company culture. That's a very good point, an excellent point. And I would respond to that by saying that from the very first, we were pushing this culture down the, you know, down the chain, okay? So as the company grew, it wasn't me or Margaret, the founders, who were promoting this, this uh, culture-based practice. But it became people down the chain also promoting these same values. So, for example, at our 30th anniversary celebration, I heard this from the lowest ranks and up, talk of culture and the fact that their supervisors and their you know, seniors all were living by that culture. So you have to kind of the culture has to be uh, woven into the fabric of the company. That's the only way to maintain it. And I can't say that, that we have succeeded 100%. Nobody, you know, it's not possible to, like I said earlier, you have to round the edges a little bit and allow for some exceptions while not losing the true north. So it is a big, it is a big challenge to maintain a business culture, particularly one that is kind of different from the norm. As you grow, that becomes more and more of a challenge. You're quite right, Doris. So how I see it is that right from the beginning, we were pushing the culture down the organization so that as the company grew, they were champions of this culture at all levels and imparted and promoted the values for all the people who are being brought into the company. So that's the best way I know how, and it's worked fairly well for us. You mentioned something when we spoke before the show started that it's very difficult to change a company's culture. Your view is that you really need to start it right from the beginning. Can you expand on that just a little bit and why you think that? Yes, definitely. Culture is like a personality of a company. And 
it's very hard to change who you are midstream. So it's much better and far more effective to weave the culture and the values into the fabric of the company right from the beginning. I won't say it's impossible to change the culture, but it will take, uh, it takes a Herculean effort and total focus of the owners or the founders or the, you know, the uh, CEO level, C-level people in the company. If they really want to change their personality, they first of all recognize that it is going to be hard. And two, they realize that the spotlight is going to be on them and they better walk the talk every day, every hour. And they, the rest of the company will observe this and the chances of the culture being absorbed within the company is going to be higher the more everybody sees that the, the owners, the founders are living by those values. Lots of companies have, have tried to change their culture, right? Or at least they say they want to. And it's interesting that your observation is that the culture is really a reflection of the personality of the leaders and how difficult it is to change a person's personality, really. What are some things that you would recommend? Because the reality is that a lot of companies out there are thinking about changing their business culture, or they say they want to, because they probably weren't as intentional as you and your team were when you started. What advice would you offer them in terms of trying to change their culture and what things can they do to be more successful in at least changing small parts of their business culture? That's an excellent question, Doris. Um, I would say that the first requirement is, the first need is to know why you want to change the culture. And I would argue that very good reason to want to change the culture is that you want your employees to really get more out of the job, to you know, impact their lives in a positive and a much broader way. They create some value and they get compensated for it and that's the end of the transaction or that's the limit of the transaction. Whereas if you decide that the quality of life in the company and even outside every employee in the company, that's a mission that can help you to take on the task of changing the culture. And then, of course, you have to have your own definition of what you want that culture to be. As Boris said earlier, the ones that we chose, we believe are very central to life itself, but you might have a different set of values. So it should be consistent with where you want to impact your employees' world or their, their lives in a very positive way. And I think those two other ideas that I can share, if somebody sets, goes on a path or starts on a path of trying to change the company culture, have a good reason for it, and then clearly enunciate what you mean by the culture that you want to uh, move towards. 
And then, like I said, walk the talk. You have to live it yourself. Every day, every hour, your employees are looking at you with skepticism, and you have to act in a way that overcomes that initial skepticism. Having worked for several large organizations who said they wanted to change the culture, I can tell you that the cognitive dissonance is abundant most of the time. As you say, usually companies decide they want to change their culture either because maybe they do an engagement study with their employees and they are fairly shocked at how unengaged their employees are, or maybe it's feedback that they've gotten from customers. I would say less often from key vendors and suppliers and other partners, sadly, but certainly when customers say, we we don't really want to do business with you, or you didn't win this because of something about how you run your business and your business culture, that's a big wake-up call. The cognitive dissonance, the here's what we're saying, here's the mission statement that we put up everywhere. And the things that business owners or leaders do, there's often a very big disconnect. And I think maybe it's because people are somehow hoping, you know, I I, I liken it to to a magic diet pill. You know, we all say, a lot of us say we want to lose weight or we want to be in better shape. And you know, we, we want this magic pill because really we don't want it to be a lot of hard work because we're really busy and, you know, we don't want it to, to really change much about our lives. But hopefully somehow taking that pill or pushing the easy button and it, it all goes away. And I kind of think of it the same way that somehow companies think that if they write a mission statement and put it in enough places that somehow things will magically be different. And I, I think what you're saying is, is not like that, right? Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. And I think it's fair to recognize that the leadership in large corporations have many forces pulling at them. You know, they have to think about shareholder value. They have to think about next quarter results and so on. So the culture is not their central focus, you know. I would say that if you really are keen on creating a certain culture in your company, you have to understand what your priorities and what the uh, compulsions are. So, for example, we made a decision very early in our history that we were not going to take any outside investment. And the reason was that when somebody invests in your company, their only connection with you is that investment. All they're interested in is seeing a return. So if that is the environment you are in, it's going to be very difficult to create a company or change the culture of a company towards a more holistic view of the business enterprise, not just as a uh, an opportunity to make money and enlarge the sh- stakeholder value, but also to become a force for good. It occurs to me that maybe some business owners are not always completely honest with themselves about what they want 
or what they say is most important. And again, I'll go back to the staying in shape or the weight loss. You know, we all say, well, again, we want to lose weight. A lot of us do anyway. And yet when it comes to making the decision, whether or not to have that nice piece of chocolate cake or whatever your favorite sweet is, you decide you really what you want to do is enjoy the chocolate cake more than you want to lose the weight. And I, I, <laughs> I think that happens a lot in business, right? I think there we all say we want to do or be certain things, but I don't know if that's really the truth sometimes. Quite right. Now, for an entrepreneur, I think the myth that Apex has shattered is that a company living by a certain set of values is going to have to compromise on the money they make. Actually, that's not true at all. A company that lives by its values can actually be more profitable. And I'll give you an example. Early in our history, we were bidding on a large project for an electric utility. And it was a large enough project that I went for the finalist presentation. And after my presentation, we were awarded the job. And so I reached out to the person and I said there were many large companies. IBM was one of them. And, you know, uh, Convergys was one of them. Large enterprises, you know. They were all bidding on this job. So how come you gave it to us? And he said, because I could see in your presentation that this was a company founded on values. We knew we could sense that you would be looking after our interest first and not just looking to increase your bottom line. So that got us a contract which we wouldn't have had a chance to win were it not for this culture that we had created and it coming through in the presentations by my team. I'm sure that your culture is one that customers and some of your partners have probably commented on. Talk a little bit about customer reactions and partner reactions to your culture. Sure. We have had, uh, we've had customers spend the morning with us in our company, in our offices, and rem make remarks like, you know, this place is palpably different. And there are so many small things that they pick up. For example, our kind of a mandate to the person who sits at the front desk is, you know, in keeping with what we just talked about, the values, that any visitor should be treated with tremendous dignity. And, you know, in many offices, in, especially in the a, a decade or so ago, the person at the front office, if it were a woman, would not feel comfortable offering you coffee or serving you tea. But in our company, the person who's in the front office knows that it's not servile. It's because you are treating your guest with dignity. And so it just feels different. I mean, people tell us it's palpably different. I read an article about your company that was in the Chicago Tribune. 
They described it as a Zen philosophy. Do you agree with that as a characterization? And what do you think they mean by that? Or what do you mean by that? That's an interesting point. What I understand from Zen is that it's not force, but gentleness that gets the best results. It's treating your employees with respect assuming that they will do the right thing. Most companies, they write volumes and volumes of employee manuals, everything that the employee could do wrong, and then a provision protecting against that. Our employee manual is four pages. And basically, it says things like, in a lighthearted way, but with the impact that is needed. We all know sexual harassment is bad, don't do it. Simple. And likewise, you know, please take adequate vacation. Make sure you strike the right balance between work and home life. Take vacation. We don't even have a vacation policy. People can take okay. as much vacation as they want. Okay, course, so I have, I have to ask far. you how this actually plays out in reality. So let's say some employee in your company feels like they have been harassed what happens well that's an excellent question i'm trying to think back um, there was an incident in our india office where some women were harassed and as soon as the ceo in india learned of it i mean he just jumped on it and made sure that the women were comfortable and uh, disciplined the people who were responsible for this. And it hasn't, it hasn't happened very often. Maybe in the last 30 years, we've only heard of two or three cases like this. And I think that's because, again, it starts with the culture, you know. Harassing somebody is against the principle of human dignity. So what about vacation? Usually the problem these days is that people don't take enough vacation. So if somebody isn't taking what their coworkers or their bosses think are enough vacation, what happens? Well, in my case, when I observe somebody who's working, um, is not apparently taking vacation now, because we only require the, a person to inform their superior and the coworkers who depend on them, that they are going on vacation. So it's not widely known who has gone on vacation and who has not. But if I observe somebody, and I have, I observe somebody is you know, not really taking enough vacation, I have sat down with them and said, look, you have to balance home life and work life. And so I would encourage them to take vacation. At times I've even given them like, you know, a bonus to go on vacation you know, like a cruise ticket or something. Well, that's a good idea. So I'm sure you've done a lot of reading about culture and business culture. Are there some resources or books that you can recommend? I mean, who's writing some of the best and most interesting things about business culture out there that you've seen? You know, for me, it all came from inside. Because if it comes from inside, it's true to who you are, and therefore, it's unique. 
And uh, frankly, my uncle, who has been my spiritual guide, because at the end of the day, these values are not, my feeling is that it comes from in, within oneself. And these values are not unique to the business. They are values that guide one's life as a whole. So I read things like the Dalai Lama's writing. I found Robert Bach, who has written Jonathan Livingston Seagull. He's written Illusions. And Zen and the, uh, the guy who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Persig, his writing. And from these general philosophy, you can then draw upon values that you want to define for your company. Any final words of advice for small business people who are focused on trying to build a culture? What advice would you offer them looking back on your own experiences? I would say that first of all, we are in business to make money. And therefore, first of all, I would like to say that pursuing a company or growing a company on values probably means you'll make more money, not less. So start with that conviction is what I say. And then be sure that the values that you put forth, that you are living it every day. And something, it's a subtle change, difference, but it's very impactful. And that is don't pursue profit for its own sake. Pursue the values being confident that the profits will come and in a generous manner. Great advice. All right, well, one last question for you before we let you go. If people are interested in connecting with you, maybe they're interested in learning more about the services that Apex Covantage offers, but maybe they're just interested in brainstorming with you about business culture, what's the best way for somebody listening in to reach you? The best way would be to write me an email. My email address is sgupta, that is spelled S-G-U-P-T-A at apexcovantage.com. Just in the name, you see, we chose covantage, not advantage. Ah, right, covantage. same kind of a philosophy that every transaction should benefit both parties. Very interesting. I'm glad you pointed that out because that is consistent. And I didn't realize that that was a, a very mindful decision to name a company. So very interesting. Chaoshi, thank you so much for being with us this week. It was really a delight having you on the show. I enjoyed your insights and can't wait to hear more about the story of how your company grows and continues to develop. And I would encourage your listeners to, if they want to have a discussion, to feel free. And I would encourage them to reach out to me because at this stage, it's very rewarding for me to be able to share what I've learned with people who are starting the journey that I started 35 years ago. It will be my pleasure to share my thoughts with whoever contacts me. That's a very, very generous offer. And I thank you for that. And I hope that several listeners do take you up on that offer. You don't get offers like that coming along very often. So thank you for that. So again, thanks for being on the show. Well, we have just enough time left this week to talk 
just for a few minutes about an issue that a couple of my clients have wrestled with. And I know it's an issue that comes up fairly often, especially for startup companies. So I thought it was worth talking about. And that's the issue of sweat equity. So sweat equity, for those of you who don't know, is contributing services in exchange for part ownership of the company that you're providing those services to. A lot of startups are strapped for cash, but they need a lot of things done that the owner can't do himself or herself. So they might barter with someone, say, uh, getting your website set up or marketing services or uh, some consulting or regulatory services, even accounting or um, bookkeeping or legal services even. Um, and in exchange, they get a small piece of the company or something called stock options, the right to buy shares in the future. It's also something that comes up when there are multiple founders. So let's say there are two founders, just to make it simple. One has cash to invest, but already has a day job that he or she doesn't want to give up. And the other one has time to get things rolling, but not much cash. In either of those situations, there can be pretty significant tax issues. So it's important to think through the issues and get good tax and legal advice before charging ahead. I will say that many founders are very surprised to learn that sweat equity is almost always viewed by the IRS as taxable income. So the IRS basically sees barters as two tra separate transactions. The labor is provided that has value to the company. And even if that person doesn't get paid for it, they receive something of value. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. And so having already received compensation, the IRS views that as something that they've gotten compensation for in exchange for their services that they need to pay income tax on. Uh, in terms of the fair value of the services provided. Uh, to make matters worse, the IRS also takes the position that the free services provided are not a deductible expense to the business, but instead need to be treated as a loan if it is one or a capital contribution. So how do you minimize this problem? Well, there are a few ways. One is to make the sweat equity arrangement and document it before the company is incorporated. Now that may work if you have uh, two very smart co-founders, provided they've gotten good advice and structured things properly, but it doesn't generally work for occasional services that are provided by sweat equity contributors because you may not even know you need those services or that you aren't gonna be able to do them yourself or that somebody is willing to do them in exchange for equity. It's usually something you discover that you need and can do as you go along. You can also stagger or delay the taxes by using a stock vesting schedule where the sweat equity contributor gets compensated over time. That minimizes the taxes due each year. What most startups do, if they've gotten good tax advice, is to sweat, structure the sweat equity contribution as a loan to the company, either as an outright loan or as something called a convertible note. I, I am planning to have a future show dedicated 
entirely to the topic of and issues related to convertible notes because they're increasingly popular. But essentially, it whereas a loan is a promise to pay back, the company pays back this individual uh, with money at interest, uh, which really isn't sweat equity at that point, it's a loan. Or the convertible note allows the person, uh, the sweat equity contributor, to convert that money that they've loaned to the company or donated to the company into shares at some future date. Other possibility is to structure the repayment as an interest in future profits of the startup rather than as equity. But again, that's not really sweat equity per se. So anyone contributing sweat equity, I think it's necessary to point out, needs to look into something called an 83B election. That allows you to pay taxes on the value of the stock that you get right away where the value of the company and its shares are presumably pretty low in value or maybe even minimal, rather than paying taxes when you sell the shares later on and the company hopefully is worth a lot more. Uh, other things to be sure to be careful of are making sure you've documented the arrangement and that you've assigned reasonable value to the work performed in lieu of payment. The bottom line, this is a complicated area. Sweat equity contributions can certainly be structured as a win-win, but if you're a startup or a small business looking to swap uh, services for a small share in the company, you'll really wanna plan this carefully and good, good tax advice. Otherwise, it could end up costing both the startup company and the sweat equity contributor a lot of money that neither of you expected. That is our show for this week, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you, especially again, to our guest this week, Dr. Shashi Gupta, the co-founder and CEO of a company called Apex CoVanted, talking about building and maintaining a company culture that works for your business. Now, you can find more helpful information and resources on my website, globalocityservicesplural.com. There's a library there, free blogs, tools, podcasts, and other resources. I'd love to hear from you. I welcome comments, suggestions, challenges, or just contact me to shoot the breeze. Email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesplural, lakesradio.org. I promise I'll respond. Be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern time. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.